Welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Jonathan Kirsch. I'm the book editor of the Jewish Journal, and I'm here today to talk to Dr. Irvin D. Yalom, Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University, a preeminent theorist and practitioner of psychotherapy, and a novelist of renown. Uh, Dr. Riallam joins us today to talk about his latest novel, The Spinoza Problem, newly published by Basic Books. Uh, it seems to me that a long career as a psychiatrist is the ideal preparation for a novelist, since talking therapy is essentially storytelling. Indeed, you first achieved bestseller status with Love's Executioner, a, a classic account of how psychotherapy can change lives. Uh, at what point in your career as a psychiatrist did you turn your attention to writing fiction? Well, I've always I've been a great reader of fiction ever since I was a, a, a teenager. And uh, I lived in a fairly unsafe uh, part of Washington, D.C., and spent a lot of time in the library uh, for as a, as a refuge. Um, and was always liked to write. I was one of these kids that teachers used to read their papers to. But the idea of uh, being a writer, uh, when I, uh, I had parents who immigrated from Russia, and the, the, there was no thought that this was an occupational choice. We, we really only had a couple of choices. You know, mainly it was either you could be a doctor or you could be a failure. Uh, so, so I went to medical school. I went, I went to psychiatry because it was as close as I could get to great literature. And um, and did what young faculty joined the Stanford faculty and did what young faculty members do have to do, which is they do research and they publish in professional journals. I did a lot of that, and after a few years, I decided to write a textbook about the field that I was quite interested in, which is group therapy. So I wrote a textbook on group therapy, and I have been told many times by many students that, uh, in fact, one of the reasons it works so well is it's studded with a lot of stories. And there are some just a paragraph, some a page or two, some ten pages. And then I did another textbook a few years later on another field that was always close to me and close to literature, too, of course, which is the field of, of existential psychotherapy. So I wrote a textbook for that field, a field that doesn't really exist or a course that doesn't exist, but that's been that's had the same fate. It's got a lot of stories in it. It's been around, and after that, I I thought that I wanted to really expand my interest and knowledge uh, uh, and and writing of existential therapy. So I started writing. I wrote a book of stories, Love's Executioner, and that that book was uh, my first real foray into into literature. I, I wrote a I wrote the ten stories. And I wrote a 60-page uh, afterward where I was describing what the stories are really about and what I was trying to teach. And I met an editor at Basic Books who was assigned to me, an editor from hell, who said that I should, if I'm going to write the stories, I should let the stories talk, period, nothing else. So we cut down that 60-page epilogue to about 12 pages, and she was absolutely right. After that, I jumped off the pier and started writing teaching novels. Even though that hit a general audience, the other books, they always were written for the young psychotherapist. Uh, you know, people who were voyeurs and interested in therapy could look into the books, but my secret target audience was always, always for the young, young therapist. And each of the, each of the novels 
have been uh, uh, teaching novels. I have certain ideas. I start with the ideas that I want to work on and not with place or character or, or plot, uh, but w with ideas. And so it is for the current book, too. Uh, as much raw material as you must have gathered in practicing psychotherapy, uh, the characters you've chosen to write about are quite famous figures. Uh, Nietzsche wept, the Schopenhauer cure, now the Spinoza problem. What attracts you to the interior lives of such very public men? Well, with Nietzsche, and then and with Schopenhauer too, I've chosen two people who had... Uh, whose work contained a lot of relevance for the field of psychotherapy. Uh, I, I, each time I've, I've read these two philosophers, I've been struck with, with how close they were to my field to really laying some of the blocks. And, and Freud acknowledged that. At times he didn't. At times he forgot that he read Nietzsche and said that he didn't. And other times it's clear that he knew Nietzsche very, very well. And... Um, in fact, one of the thought experiments that I had in my in my in my mind when I started writing the Nietzsche novel was uh, to, to imagine what might have happened had Nietzsche, who was a man who lived in great despair, been placed in a historical moment where he could have been able to invent a psychotherapy that was from his own printed words, and that could have been used to heal himself. You know, it was an idea. What if psychotherapy had been invented not by not by a scientist or, or a physician, but by a philosopher? That was what I wanted to do in that book. Uh, Spinoza is and has long been a very appealing figure in Western civilization, or at least those among those of us who still think of the Enlightenment as a good thing. Uh, yet you introduce a second character in the Spinoza problem, uh, the Nazi ideologue Alfred Rosenberg a man who was condemned at Nuremberg as, and I'm quoting, the intellectual high priest of the master race, uh, a man who died on the gallows as a war criminal. Uh, what was Rosenberg's Spinoza problem, so to speak, and what inspired you to place these two very different men between the covers of the same novel? Pure chance. I had been really struggling for a long time about how to write a novel about Spinoza. I'd wanted to for years and years. I was always fascinated with him. There, were no, there was no drama in Spinoza's life aside from his excommunication by the Jewish community at the age of 23. All the scholars who've written about him consider him a, a gentle, kind, almost saintly figure. Uh, there's no feuds, no no women, no divorces, no car chases. There, there was there was no action at all that I could find. And then I was in, I, I gave some lectures invited uh, by the, the Dutch psycho psychiatric community about four years ago, and decided that when I was there. I asked them that I be given a day, a Spinoza day. So they appointed a, asked a philosopher who's interested in Spinoza and the head of the Spinoza Society to take me around. They took me around to um, various uh, sites where he, uh, the area where he was born, the house he died in, where his body, where he's buried. <clears throat> but the real interesting part of this that I've been looking forward to was the Spinoza Museum, a town called Rheinsberg in about 45 minutes out of Amsterdam, just a small working-class family, and the, half the house was the museum. And so when I, I went in there, very uh, 
interested and excited. Uh, the museum was closed, undergoing uh, renovation, but they so they gave me free reign, and I could go to the library. There are 150 odd books there, and I could touch them and fondle them. And uh, I, I love the idea of touching these books that Spinoza's fingers had touched. But after a little while, they told me, "Well, you know." Dr. Yelm, uh, he didn't really touch these books. The fact was he had died poor. He never had any any material goods. And they had to auction everything he owned, mainly his bed and his books, to pay for his burial. They happened to be, fortunately, a rather obsessional notary who did the auction, uh, who took very careful note of the bindings and the date and this, the place of, of each publication. And 200 years later, a philanthropist could recreate the library, identical to the books he had, except not the books that his fingers held. That was a little disappointing. And then uh, I looked at the picture of Spinoza. It's the same picture that's on my book cover. Um, it's, it's hanging there prominently in the Spinoza Museum. I... I I really uh, fell into those uh, heavy-lidded, soulful eyes, uh, almost a mystical experience for me, which is very rare, until one of them said, well, you know, Dr. Yellum, that's not really what he looked like. There, there, was, a, there was no picture of Spinoza that was drawn uh, while he was alive. If there were, it, 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 it has never, not survived. So uh, there was a... Uh, there was a uh, glass manufacturing, lens grinding plant there, equipment, but there was no problem of my looking at that because there was a big sign by the door saying, this is not Spinoza's lens grinding equipment. <laughs> so I was feeling a little discouraged. I was going to write a novel about sheer elusiveness, perhaps, uh, because he, he is a, a very hard person to find. He's not in his writings. He's invisible in his writings. He did that quite deliberately. And just then, my, I heard my hosts, the other room, talking about the Nazis. And I said, what, are the Nazis here? And then I heard this amazing story that after the Blitzkrieg, in which uh, Holland surrendered rather quickly after about 48 hours, um, uh, a few weeks after that, a, a troop of Nazis came in, all members of a task force called the ERR, which means task force of the Reich leader Rosenberg, a man named Alfred Rosenberg. His troops were the troops that uh, looted all of Jewish Europe, all the Jewish treasures and libraries and books all through Europe. And uh, then after after that, then then all tre heart treasure that they could they could reach. Um, and I said, oh, then you really had. And they took the books out and. Uh, I said, well, that means you have to recreate the library another time. He said, no, that's a strange part of it. The, the library was kept intact, and it was found intact after the war in a salt mine outside of Frankfurt. I said, that's amazing. Where, where was it during those years? And they said, nobody knows. I said, well, why didn't they destroy it? Uh, and why didn't they just pick up... A Rembrandt down the street, that's worth a hundred times the value of those books. He said, no, 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 that's not the point at all. They had a special thing about Spinoza. Uh, and the man, the officer who actually confiscated the books, hands-on, packed them in the books, wrote a report. Maybe Rosenberg read this report, but it's there. You can get it on the Nuremberg document on the web, uh, saying that these these items will be of great value to us in helping us solve the Spinoza problem. 
So it's an amazing sentence. What problem could the, the Nazis have with Spinoza? Uh, and I began thinking of this man, Rosenberg, and he was a, a pseudo-intellectual and fancied himself a philosopher. And I began to do more and more research on him. And by the time I left that library that day, I knew I had a novel and started writing pretty soon after that. There was another thing, incidentally, about that library that inflamed my attention, which was we went into the rest of the house. I was one of the first person to be able to do that. They would just had, because the last member of that family had died. So we went to look at the living room, and upstairs there was a, just a, not even a stairway. It was almost a ladder climbed up there and a tiny little bedroom. And then just as I was going down the ladder, I noticed a two-by-two two square in the corner of the room. And I said, what's that up in the ceiling? He said, oh, that's a trap door up to a little crawl space in the attic. And we had two Jewish women there for the whole war. Um, we took good care of them. We fed them. So again, I was astounded by that. There's this firestorm outside, all of Europe in flames, and yet they preserved this library, and upstairs two women were, were protected from the Nazis. So that, that's what started me, and I began being very interested with Span Rosenberg and began writing it as a, 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 a alternating chapters. When Rick Santorum uh, complained that President Obama was a snob because he thought people might want to go to college, I was reminded that the Nazis, as vile as they were, uh, uh, were uh, aspired to be or thought of themselves as very civilized people. Uh, do you credit uh, Alfred Rosenberg? Uh, you've called him now a, a pseudo-intellectual, but do you credit him with any uh, intellectual achievement or was he just a thug who wrote a book? No, he was one of the very, very few uh, uh, of the inner circle who had any kind of a graduate degree. He and Goebbels. Goebbels had a PhD in political science. He had a he had an advanced degree in engineering, but was mainly interested in in literature. And the way uh, maybe this is giving away a bit of the plot, but the the, the solution I had to the to the Nazi problem was that uh, when Rosenberg was asked in my in my novel, this is this part of it's fictional, when he was sixteen and seemed to hate everything, especially the Jews at that point, I said, "Do you love anything?" Uh, do you admire anything? And and he said, well, I, I admire uh, the universal genius Goethe. Um, and then when, we, then when I went to Goethe's autobiography, and I found these wonderful two chapters where Goethe revered, worshipped Spinoza, carried his book, The Ethics, in his pocket for a whole year. So I began formulating, that is the Nazi problem. They they revere Goethe, and the same thing could be said too for Schilling and and and, uh, um, and and Nietzsche and the other and Hegel. All the great Nazis revered Spinoza, so that must be a problem for them at some level. Uh, one of your invented characters is, I, I suppose, not surprisingly, a psychiatrist, a German psychiatrist who treats Alfred Rosenberg. And I have to ask you, as a as a psychiatrist, does the science of the mind? have anything to offer us by way of explanation of the horrors of the Holocaust and the Second World War? Was it a psychiatric aberration? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's a psychiatric aberration. I think it's, it's, it's a cultural one. Um, the, and as far as the, I think the leading Nazis all had particular psychiatric issues, um, but uh, they functioned quite efficiently in their particular role. 
it was not hard for me to invent a therapist for uh, for Rosenberg because Rosen first of all psychiatry was functioning in Germany there was a psychotherapy institute there uh, all the Jews in the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute got out or were murdered uh, but they still kept the psychotherapy institute headed by the way by uh, the cousin of, of Goring, a man named Matthias Goring. And for Rosenberg, it's very clear he had some psychiatric issues. He had two hospitalizations uh, that we know about in a special uh, hospital for the uh, higher-ranking Nazis, uh, Himmler's Hospital. And we know that at least one of those hospitalizations, he was there for psychiatric reasons. We have a letter from his psychiatrist to Hitler, describing uh, Rosenberg in there, describing him as a very arrogant person who felt too superior to speak to anyone around him. Um, and, and we also have Rosenberg's uh, works and his books and also his performance at the Nuremberg Trials. So he was a fairly, uh, a man who was very blind uh, to his own self. But he was, he was well-educated, um, he wrote a book that was second only to Mein Kampf, big bestseller called The Myth of the 20th Century, in which he drew uh, from, uh, from great literature, but he drew very haphazardly uh, and not methodically. And every single critic who's ever read that book has said the same thing. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's confused. We can't comprehend it. Incomprehensible was the word you see over it. I tried to read it, and I found, found the same thing. But there were many people, maybe some of the Nazis, maybe Hitler himself, who or felt so bewildered that that book, they thought he must be a genius. <laughs> and the irony of it was that when these IQs of all the Nazis were taken at Nuremberg, he had a very limited IQ, 120, uh, one of the less intelligent of the batch. Really? There was another book of renown yes. uh, that may uh, called Hitler's Willing Executioners, which makes the argument that uh, the Holocaust happened in Germany because it could have only happened in Germany because of a unique uh, predisposition in the German mind towards uh, obedience to authority and violent hatred of the Jews, uh, that it was a defect in the culture and the personality of the Germans. Uh, do you buy that? Do you do you subscribe to that idea? I don't know the book. I, uh, I've got to think about that. I do know that uh, that the Germans uh, killed eighty percent of the Dutch Jews with very very few German troops. Uh, the Dutch were very willing to uh, to volunteer for that duty, and I think the same thing may be true in other countries, Austria perhaps as well. So I'm not sure that's really true. But I, I've not studied it well enough. Um, Spinoza, as you've pointed out, was famously excommunicated by his synagogue in Amsterdam in the 17th century for asking impertinent questions about the divine authorship of the Bible, among other things. And ever since, uh, some progressive Jews, including uh, David Ben-Gurion, have advocated uh, a posthumous revocation of that decree uh, does Spinoza now belong to the wider, wider world, or is there still something uniquely Jewish about this man? Good question. He belongs to the wider world for sure. He pioneered, you know, the the Enlightenment. He contributed so much to the rise of, of natural science. 
he contributed to the field of of, of psychiatry con- uh, uh, as well. He, you know, he had this this idea, this feeling of everything belonging to this great, beautiful, magnificent causal nexus, and everything that was caused, everything that exists, including thoughts, feelings, passions, was caused by something else. And uh, we can think of them as almost lines and planes in geometry. We, we know enough about them; we could understand them. He believed too that understanding leads to transcendence. Those sorts of ideas belong belong to the whole world. Um, as for You've got to ask, really, what kind of a Jew? Um, you know, when Ben-Gurion uh, was rather sympathetic to to Spinoza, and uh, he was invited to uh, attend the uh, an unveiling of a second stone for Spinoza, they they, they uh, not rather than just just the first one, and, and some of the, some of the Jews, the more liberal Jews, heard about there was this new monument was going to be put up. And they uh, all volunteered, and they wanted to have a a piece of black basalt coming from Israel to become part of that stone. I described that in the epilogue of this book. Um, and Ben Gurion supported their efforts, but got a lot of flack from the Knesset at that point. the 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 idea that he asked the Jewish uh, Amsterdam rabbinate to rescind the the excommunication probably is a fairy tale. Uh, he denies that had it happened himself. But the way he denied it, he denied it by saying that the Jews know that that he is Jewish. In fact, then he pointed to the idea there is a street, and I have a reproduction of it in my book, where you see Spinoza Avenue and Ben-Gurion Avenue intersect. The Knesset, Orthodox members of the Knesset were very angry with with both Ben Gurion and Goldemeyer, uh for sending someone to the unveiling. Mm-hmm. So it depends which Jews. My I have a good friend who was chairman at um, of psychiatry at, at University of California, and he tells me he was in a Hebrew school when he was thirteen, fourteen years of age, and he one of his teachers uh, saw that he was reading Spinoza and took the book, spit on it, threw it to the ground, and stamped on it. So the Orthodox Jews have have never given forgiven Spinoza, and if if they're Orthodox Jews, then they shouldn't forgive him, if they're if because he is very threatening to uh, to Orthodox views, to, to any kind of superstitious views. The Christians felt the same way about him. He was threatening to their. He denied any kind of supernatural events, denied all miracles, divide the de- denied the divinity of Christ and the divinity of God. You know, God was nature, the laws of nature. Uh, The character that you invented, the German psychiatrist, expresses an intriguing thought. Uh, One of the things I love about psychiatry, he observes, is that, unlike any other field of medicine, it veers close to philosophy. Uh, As the author of novels that feature Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and now the Spinoza problem, surely you are speaking through the character that you created uh, but there's a, a provocative question I- inherent in that remark. Uh, how does philosophy enter the therapy room, and how does it help the patient? Well, you know, one way I can answer that is I think back to when I was a student, and I was taking courses and hearing lectures on the history of my field, the history of psychiatry. And it started with Jung and Freud and Pavlov and started in the 19th century. 
And that struck me always as so obviously incorrect because the problems we often deal with with patients when we think about human despair go back to the beginning of time, to the great writers and thinkers. I'll tell you something quite specifically to, to that point. I wrote a book a few years ago called Staring at the Sun, a book whose subtitle was Overcoming the Terror of Death. And I felt like far too little do therapists really think about the, the fear of death, whereas the fear of death, it seems to me, is something that bedevils all of us, all of us who are self-aware. With self-awareness comes the idea that you're going to be, you're going to be facing extinction. And we all have to live with this knowledge. And there are a great many people who develop tremendous terror about that. It's, it's hardwired into us. So I, I began thinking about how do we, how do we help people deal with the terror of death? I'm not saying the fear of death because I, everyone's got that, but I mean the terror of death, excessive terror of death. And I went, I went back and, and found this gold mine of thought about it in, in Epicurus, a man who lived just a couple of generations after Plato. Uh, and he considered himself a medical philosopher. He felt that uh, he has to deal, become a physician to the soul, to the spirit of a person, and that what causes us to, to be frightened and fall into despair is the fear of death. And then he had his students learn a catechism of solutions to this problem, which I think are still very relevant to my field. I use them in my therapy. For example, the idea that, um, well, one of them was that you have nothing to fear from the gods uh, in, in that the death is final because the priests were frightening people in those days that if they didn't behave in a certain way and uh, with a great deal of deference, of course, to the priests that they, they would be punished after death by the gods. But then he came up with, I thought, rather elegant arguments. The, the symmetry one interests me still and I still use and it gives me comfort. The idea that after your death, you'll be in a similar, what shall we say, state and yet there's so much anxiety about the the second state of non-being and so little about the first. And yet they're absolutely identical. Uh, Nabokov used that in his uh, Speak Memory. You know, he one of his first paragraphs, he said that, that uh, uh, life is a... Is a is a crack of light between two eternal pools of darkness, the one after we die, the one before we end, and that they're identical. So Epicurus is extremely useful. So I pull things from other philosophers. But this is not where this my field is going, however. We're very, very far away from philosophy and, and from literature, and, and that's a great misfortune, I think. I, I spent some time yesterday with the residents at Stanford, and I began to, as I talked to them, I, I felt that many of them were missing this. We're, we're missing our what used to be our, our great contact and alliance with the, with the humanities. That, that's, that's disappearing quickly. Well, let me, let me uh, drill down on that question. Uh, as a psychiatrist who embraces and uses philosophy, uh, are, are you in despair that so many psychiatrists are now dispensers of medication and are, are using pills to treat mental illness or mental problems? Uh, yes, 
very definitely, and I'm feeling it very keenly today after my meetings with the residents. I haven't been teaching them for a while until I had this long session with them yesterday. I began, <clears throat> offered them a uh, evening seminar at my house just to be, be willing to contribute more time for that. Uh, and they're missing too. Yes, the field is very uh, dangerously far away. So far away, I have fears that it'll never be able to come back because if, right now, uh, the majority of psychiatrists who do therapy and are good therapists all have white hair, mm-hmm. and the younger ones aren't aren't being trained in this way. And and I was talking to one of the people one of the people in the faculty. He says, you know, when our when our psychiatric residents graduate and they want to get a position, say in the state of California or say in Kaiser, they are they are not jobs for therapy. They they're hired only for medication. Dr. Yalom, thank you for joining us for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to a fellow writer. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Jonathan Kirsch. Mm-hmm.